on as I read now uh, Romans chapter 8 verse 4. I'll read uh, 1 through 4 for the sake of continuity, uh, but verse 4 is the focus of the sermon and in particular uh, the first half of verse 4. Hear the word of God. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And let us pray together. Our gracious Father in heaven, how we thank you once again uh, for the light of your word, how it illumines our path, how it uh, lightens our way. Oh God, we are like uh, the man who was, uh, well, the, the person assumed singing that song when it was written. The one seeking mercy at your hand. The one seeking to lift up his head though he knows he is sinful. And we pray, O God, through the preaching now of your word read that it would, well, that it would enable us to do that. To lift up our heads unto you, our God and our Savior. Amen. I have suggested that the real value of chapter 8, both practically uh, and and in terms of what it's really teaching to us is the way it enables us to be more settled in our assurance. Our assurance in particular of our own salvation. And it helps here when I put it that way to remember that there are two kinds of assurance. The confession speaks of both. There is the assurance of faith and the assurance of grace and salvation. Assurance of faith says, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God who died for sinners. I believe that. I believe that about God. Assurance of grace and salvation says, I believe that he saved even me, that he's my savior. And so that is a common distinction that you will find. If we were to put it negatively, the man who lacks assurance of faith doubts God. But the man who lacks assurance of grace and salvation doubts Himself. And I would say that the more common assurance that we uh, are looking for and struggling to find is the second kind. In the marrow of modern divinity, uh, it's it's uh, a discussion between evangelistia and neophytus. I think I said that right. Evangelistia says this to neophytus. He says, it seems you do not want to ground for your believing, but for believing that you have believed. In other words, what we want to know, along with Neophytus, is simply, are we really the children of God? We doubt not so much God, but ourselves. Do we really belong to the class of those who are described not only in chapter eight, but in chapter five as well? The Christian who is sure. The person who is justified and he knows it. That second clause is all important. You see, it's possible to be justified and not to know it. 
But the height of Christian experience occurs when you're justified and you know it. God is on my side. Who can possibly be against me? Is there anyone stronger than God? You see, I know that I'm weak, but but God is stronger. He's stronger than me. He's stronger than all my foes. And so. Before I answer the question. Namely, how can I be sure? What is the ground of my believing that I have believed? I want to express the value of being sure. The truth is, as I've been saying, that some believers, they're genuine believers. They're going to heaven. They're justified by faith alone. They go all their days without ever being sure. They feel sure of God, but unsure of themselves. It seems always. Well, that's one class of man of men. Another class uh, are those who confidently they believe they are going to heaven without any solid reason for doing so. And so those would be the class of those who have a false assurance. And so you have believers who lack assurance but should have it. You have unbelievers who have assurance but shouldn't. But there is a third class. And that is those who are truly believers and who are sure. Those uh, who are like The person that Paul describes in Romans chapter 5, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And we have access by faith into grace, into this grace in which we stand through Jesus Christ. He says, uh, we have God's love being shed abroad in our hearts. We're able to rejoice even in tribulation. Uh, do, Do you see what Paul is describing just in those five verses? He's describing the kind of Christian that you can't knock down, that you can't discourage. You can throw anything in his path and he's always triumphing. He's always rejoicing in hope. He is sure of God. He is sure of himself. He's going to heaven and he knows it. The question that is before us and it's been before us ever since we began chapter five is, do you want to be like that? Do you want to be that kind of Christian, Uh, someone who is immovable even by trials? Someone whom the writer to the Hebrews describes as possessing assurance of hope unto the end. And yet what we find is Sinclair Ferguson describes uh, in his book, The Whole Christ, uh, he's quoting a hymn. We find hindrances all the way. Actually, I think the, the hymn says hindrances strewn all the way. In other words, it's common. And I know it's common because I know you and I know myself. I know that this is a common battle for Christians to get assurance only to lose it again. It is a constant struggle for many. And why is this? Well, there's many reasons for this. Uh, Sometimes it's sin. There's a period of sin Uh, sometimes or even just a period of temptation. There could be a frowning providence. Sometimes we're relying too much on our own understandings and our own feelings. But the chief reason, the chief hindrance to assurance in the Christian's life or the chief reason he gets it but loses it is because he forgets one way or another the, the, the ways and the means whereby he got it. And how did he get assurance in the first place? Well, there are three ways and means whereby the believer gets assurance. In fact, all of them are found in Romans chapter eight, verses one through seventeen. And the first is uh, what we find uh, in the prior verse, verse three, uh, by considering God, uh, uh, by considering salvation rather as God's work objectively accomplished. 
what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh. God did. Salvation was something not left to man to accomplish for himself, but it was something God did for man. It's not in the realm of subjective feelings. It's in the realm of objective accomplishment. In other words, uh, what Paul is saying here and what I'm saying is that salvation is a matter of grace, not of works. Salvation is not left to you. And if it was left to you, as Luther famously said, if it depended on me for a single moment, for one second of my Christian life, I would lose it just like that. Salvation isn't made to depend upon me. It's made to depend upon God entirely. And that's what grace is. The gospel of free grace to sinners. Something that God does for me entirely. That's what justification is all about. And that's what makes me sure. It's my realization that what I could not do, God did. Now, I'm going to come back to that in a moment. But do you see, uh, I'm going to come back to it when we when we look at verses three and four together. But do you see the value of placing salvation in the realm of God's actions, not my own? This carries with it the certainty of God himself. And here is where faith is energized by a true object and thus strengthened. Faith no longer focused on itself. In other words, you don't you don't get faith by asking, do I have faith? You get faith by believing God, by focusing on him and his mighty acts. And thus faith is not only born, but it is strengthened. And so you can't be preoccupied all the time with this question. Do I have faith that sets faith upon itself? And that is to make assurance impossible. At the same time, I would say a second way or means by which the believer gets assurance is by self-examination. And so there is value in asking the question, do I have faith? Now, I would say too many start here, but others neglect this altogether. The truth is, as Paul uh, will say, that the believer must testify about himself to himself. There is value and there is need to say, I am a son of God. God has saved me. He's changed me. He's made me new. He's justified even me, a sinner. And if he can't say this, if he can't testify about himself to himself, how else is he to get assurance? The believer, the believer must develop the ability to look for the presence of God's work in him. To reassure his heart before God, as John says in 1 John 3 verse 19. Or as Paul says, we, 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 we no longer regard any man according to the flesh. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. You see, that isn't just true about others. It's about Myself, I no longer regard myself according to the flesh. I am in Christ. I am a new creation. And throughout the New Testament, we find certain tests and descriptions of the believer. He's like this. I, I've, been, I've been describing him. He's born again. He's justified. He's at peace with God. And we ask as we read the New Testament, do I meet the test? Do I pass the test? Do I match the description? Uh, so much of the work of preaching or application points the hearer in this direction, not only testifying the mighty works of God, but encouraging uh, the man who hears to ask these questions of himself. Do I have faith? Do I have new life? Do I know anything of the blessing of justification? Uh, so, and so he testifies about himself to himself. The reality is, many of you know, and this is something uh, that I can say personally that I know very well as well, 
is that too, too often uh, we assume the office, uh, not of the friend, but of the enemy. We become our own worst enemy. We assume the office of Satan himself. Rather than testifying and dealing with ourselves kindly, we deal with ourselves harshly. We testify not uh, in our own favor, but against ourselves. We say things like, how could I possibly be a believer, given the fact that I just committed such and such sin? Well, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about uh, the accusatory tone that we sometimes take about ourselves. I'm talking about the believer's genuine ability to say, I know that God has saved me. That is my testimony. That is my profession. I am aware of his life and his work in me. Another way to put this is to say that faith appears by the presence of fruit. Now, you're looking for faith in your life. You're asking the question, question, do I have faith? Am I a believer? Well, how does the believer settle that about himself in the same way he does about others? He looks for faith in the presence of fruit. He looks for life in its evidence, which is not to confuse faith and works, but it is to say that the way to discern the presence of real faith is to look for some evidence that it is there, just as James argues in James chapter 2. You say that you have faith, but I show you my faith by my works. Closely connected, uh, and I would say as a sub-point to this second point of self-examination, is the actual regard we pay to God himself. The ongoing day-to-day relation that we have with God. In fact, I would say that this is uh, of more value even Uh, than what I was just saying, of more value than the judgment we pass concerning ourselves is the way that we respond to God in his commands. In other words, it's the test of obedience, which I would put as a subset under self-examination. It's a question of the way we live, the way we walk. Uh, John says this in 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. He says, by this we know that we know him. In other words, we know this about ourselves. We know that we know him if we keep his commandments. It's walking in obedience. I could keep reading, but John goes along the same lines. It's walking in obedience that leads to assurance. Or to put it in the language of of, uh, Paul in Romans chapter 6. He says, what's the value Of saying that I've been saved by grace if I am still living in sin. There's no value in saying that. You're only showing that you don't know anything. You don't know the first thing about the grace of God. If that's your argument. No, you don't get assurance by walking and living in sin. And if that's how you're walking and that's how you're living. You have no right to be assured. You get and you find assurance by walking in the commandments. By this we know that we know him. And it is out of this walking, the course of our lives, that, assure, that our assurance about ourselves that we are indeed believers grows apparent even to ourselves. And so Jonathan Edwards says, I'll just paraphrase something he says in the religious affections. He says, assurance comes more by walking than by considering. He says, we're obeying the commandments of God that we find the truth about ourselves that we really do know him. We're walking in the light, no longer walking in darkness, but the point is the same in either case, whether it's uh, uh, whether it's self-examination or obedience, we have to deal with ourselves. We can't take ourselves out of the equation. I'll read something from Sinclair Ferguson. 
He says, there is a strong link in the New Testament between faithfulness in the Christian walk and the enjoyment of assurance. Obedience strengthens faith and confirms it. But there's a third category of assurance. I should have said uh, that uh, verses 1 through 4 deal with the first kind. Verses 5 through 13 deal with the second kind. But verses 14 through 17 deal with the third kind of assurance. Apart from which we could never arrive at a true and lasting assurance of faith. And that is God's testimony about us. In other words, we might wonder and we will wonder, is our testimony true about ourselves? And here the spirit comes in and he adds his own, as Paul says in verses 15 and 16. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear but you receive the spirit of adoption by whom you cry. We cry out, Abba, Father, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. It's interesting to see uh, that Paul is saying that he adds his testimony to ours. It isn't a bare testimony, the spirit testifying we are the sons of God. It's 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 him adding his own to ours. The picture is basically this. We've already con- Included about ourselves that we are believers. We believe in the objective act of God. We see the work of God in our lives. But along comes the spirit. Adding his confirming testimony. Assuring us that we are not mistaken. I testify about myself. I am the son of God. And that God is my father. And the spirit says. Yes indeed you are right. You are indeed the sons of God. And this is the ultimate confirmation. It is the highest and the most enjoyable form of assurance. It's what Paul describes in chapter 5 verse 5. Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And my argument is that all three of these are found In Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 17. God's work objectively considered, which I believe. The testimony I give concerning myself. And then thirdly, the testimony which God gives concerning me. Returning to what uh, was said in chapter 8, verse 3. And we must take verses 3 and 4 together because, uh, in essence, they're one statement. And verse 4 concludes the thought which began in verse 3. As we've already seen, verse 3 deals with the first kind of assurance. Here's where we have to start. We don't start with ourselves. We start with God. And the reason we start with God, I hope to make clear. The question is, how does this help us? How does this help us to be sure? He says, for what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God did. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. How does that help us? It helps us in this way. How does it help us to be sure, I'm asking? By pointing to what God has done for us, precisely what we could not do ourselves, nor the law for us. We couldn't do it. The law couldn't do it. But here's the argument. God has done it. And this is what I need to see if I want to be sure. I need to set my heart and my mind on this more than anything else. What God has done for me. Especially that which I could not do for myself. I need to place his actions over against my own inaction, his ability against my inability, his strength against my weakness, 
And I need to make my faith depend upon that. Not what I cannot do, but what God can do. And I need to ask myself less whether I have faith and more what I make of the acts of God, especially at the cross. I look there and what do I see? That's the real test of whether you have faith. When you survey the wondrous cross, when you behold what God is doing there, what do you see? And what do you conclude about God and yourself? When you survey the wondrous cross, do you see the power of God to save? Or do you just see a spectacle of folly and human weakness? Do you see there God's willingness and his ability to save even me, a poor wretched sinner? You see, I do not make it depend upon me. I already know I cannot do it. But I ask solely, this is the question of faith, can he do it? And has he done it? Do I find at the cross of Christ, God's saving man? Do I, do I behold that which saves me? In other words, the question is, do I know anything of what Abraham knows? Do I have anything of the faith of Abraham, of whom it is said, who contrary to hope, chapter 4, verse 18, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead, since he was about a hundred years old. And the deadness of Sarah's womb, he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised he was able to perform. Do you understand the contrast that Paul is describing there? And he's really describing not just the faith of Abraham, but the assurance of Abraham, the certainty he had. He was aware of his own weakness. He was aware of the weakness of uh, his wife. But that was no obstacle to faith. It's only an obstacle of faith if you make that the thing. If you're trying to consider what is it that man can do? Oh, I know what man can do. And I realize that he cannot do it. Abraham did not consider his own weakness. His faith dealt not with man, but with God. What he considered was not only what God had promised, but that he was able to do so. He was fully Convinced that God, that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. And so he placed his faith on that. You see, he didn't ask the question, do I have faith? At least he didn't begin there. He asked the question simply, can he do it? And if he said he will do it, is he not faithful to his own word? Faith deals with the power of God. Especially the power that is on display at the cross, the power of God to save, of which Paul boasts at the beginning of the epistle. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. But faith doesn't stop at that. It doesn't simply behold the great works of God, but it also comprehends the great purpose of God on display in such actions. In other words, faith deals with the question of why. In other places, uh, such as Ephesians or Colossians, Paul speaks of it as the revelation of a mystery, or 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And he tells us, in essence, that what faith uh, deals with is the mystery of God, except unlike unbelief, it is able to comprehend the mystery. God is revealing something to the church. 
and preeminently at the cross, something about himself, something about his disposition to the sinner, even his electing love, his willingness to save and the method of his salvation. And faith comprehends that. Faith is able to answer the question of why. Why has God acted in this way? Once again, can we survey the wondrous cross of Christ and discern anything of the will of God? On the one hand, it is true we are left along with Paul, as he says in Romans chapter 11 to conclude. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him. There is a definite limit on what we are able to comprehend and even what we are able to comprehend leads us to conclude along with Paul. Who can know the mind of the Lord? His ways, his mind is past finding out. But on the other hand, while the secret things belong to God, the revealed things belong to us and something of his purpose he has revealed to us. Indeed, the whole of the New Testament is precisely that. He tells us not only what he has done, but why he has done it. And I would argue that that equally is a great boost to the believer's assurance. When we behold something of the grandness and the greatness of his actions, comprehending his purpose in saving man. Such is the purpose stated in verse four. Not only did he condemn sin in the flesh of his son, whom he sent in the likeness of our sinful flesh, but he did so for this reason, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. There is your purpose statement. The stated reason that God condemned sin in the flesh of his son at the cross was in order that the righteous requirement of the law would be fulfilled in us. That God would look upon us and say, the righteousness of my law is fulfilled in them. Everything that the law demanded of them has been met. In other words, we have here a question. It's a question that needs to be asked with reverence, but can be done in an edifying way. Namely, why the cross? Why did Jesus, the son of God, die on the cross? Why did God the father send his son in the likeness of sinful flesh? To be condemned for my sin and his flesh on the cross. It's important to realize that the unbeliever has no answer to this. The unbeliever never comprehends anything of the purpose of God on the cross. You tell him Jesus died for sinners. He died for your sin that you might be saved. And it's all a riddle and a mystery to him. He can't understand why Jesus of Nazareth, the son of God, had to die that he might be saved. Oh, but I would say the believer can The believer understands why. And this is precisely the office of faith. But even then. As I say, it is it can be edifying. It can it it can be unedifying. It often is. But it is possible and it does happen that the believer beholds the father smiting the son for my sin. And in reverence, he asks the question. Why? Oh, God, was there no other way? And sometimes it's even suggested that such a procedure was not really necessary, that other that other um, 
avenues were open to God. But he chose this one because it was the most fitting vehicle to express the great love he had for sinners. In other words, it wasn't really necessary, but it was best. In fact, once uh, from this pulpit, a guest preacher suggested such a thing. Well, that isn't that isn't the argument of Scripture. You see, to say that is to really say, well, there was another way, but this is the way I chose. And I'm saying that that is to ignore precisely what is said here in verse four. It really was necessary. It really was the only way to save man. Because otherwise, the righteous requirement of the law would never be fulfilled in us. And thus we would always be condemned and we could never be justified. It was all in order to satisfy the righteous requirement of the law on our behalf so that we might be saved. Here I am reminded of what God said to Moses when he asked to behold his glory. You remember in Exodus chapter 33, God, show me your glory. And how did God show him his glory? Well, he showed him his glory, not with his eyes. He made it so that he couldn't see. He hid him in the cleft of the rock, but by in that moment revealing the glory of his name, what the covenant name Yahweh really meant. And it meant this. Exodus 34 verses six and seven, the Lord passed by him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. By no means clearing the guilty. In other words, God was saying to Moses and he's saying to us, do you see what kind of God I am? I am a God who loves to show mercy. I'm full of it. I delight in pardoning sinners and yet not in such a way as to clear the guilty. By no means will I clear their guilt. For it is not the law, let us realize, that is offended by sin. It's the law that is transgressed, but not offended. It is God himself. Yes, and he will by no means clear the guilt of sin. Not a trace of it, he says, will go unpunished. He will punish it to the uttermost. And in this we will behold his glory. In fact, what he's really saying is he couldn't be God. He couldn't be Yahweh, the covenant Lord, if that's what he did. And so do you see what Paul is saying when he says that he condemned sin in the flesh of his son, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled? There he was doing what we were too weak to do ourselves, namely to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law, which demanded obedience and which demanded punishment or penalty uh, when there was guilt. What we were too weak to do, God did. Verse 3, he condemned sin in the flesh of his son. The sin which was committed in the flesh must be condemned in the flesh. That's what the law requires. But here's what God did. He sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh in order that he might bear my sin in his flesh. So that the condemnation that was due for my sin might justly fall upon him. The stroke Uh, That was due for me fell upon him, not me. And thus the righteous requirement of the law was fulfilled for us. But you say, why not just let the sinner off? Why not let him go free? Why go to such lengths? 
Must the father really smite the son? But here is our answer. The answer is that the law required more. The law required more than that God should simply let the sinner off. And even God in all his greatness is bound by his own, na- his own nature to honor the righteous requirement of the law. Let us see that even God himself was not free not to punish sin. Indeed, his greatness is seen and his glory in just this, that he doesn't let the sinner off. That he does not let sin go unpunished. Oh, but at the same time, if God really should condemn my sin in the flesh of his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross, going back to Exodus 34, may he not also be merciful to me, the very mercy he delights to show. Is he not free then to justify me freely by his grace? For what further claim does the law have on my sin? Its righteous requirement has been fulfilled on my behalf. Is God is not God himself satisfied in this that Christ should die for me? Is not the righteous demand of the law that sin must not go unpunished fulfilled to the uttermost in his death? And if I am in him and it was for my sin that he died, has not the righteous requirement of the law been fulfilled in me as well? And so what did God accomplish by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, condemning sin in his flesh? He fulfilled the law, the law which said which said sin must be punished Uh, in another place. Paul says Romans chapter three, verse thirty one. And there, if you know what he's saying in chapter three, he's arguing about the cross. And thus he says, do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish it. We are not saying the law has been set aside or overturned. We are saying that the very righteousness of its demand has been fulfilled to the uttermost. But do you see at the same time that language, the language itself demands more? To speak of the, of the righteousness of the law demands more than uh, the infliction of a penalty It demands also a a real righteousness achieved by a real obedience. Such was the law's claim on Adam and nothing has changed. Still, the law requires fulfillment in a positive way. Not just the infliction of a penalty, but the positive rendering of obedience to its commands. And that's the argument that you find in Romans chapter 5 where we read of the obedience of the one by which the many were were made righteous. Romans chapter 5 verse 19, that is the obedience of Jesus Christ by which we were made righteous. Do you see what he's saying? By which the righteousness or the righteous requirement of the law was fulfilled in us. How? In him. And thus we see To bring these two ideas together, Christ not only experiences condemnation for us on the cross, but we could go further, saying that he also offers something positive to God on our behalf. And that everything or every claim that the law had on me, he fulfilled on my behalf. All the days of his flesh, he obeyed the law. And thus he achieved a real righteousness by a real obedience, whereby we are really justified in him. What is left in God's law to condemn me? It demands obedience. That demand has been met. 
It demands the, the sin committed in the flesh be condemned in the flesh. That demand has also been met in the flesh of Jesus Christ. And can you not see then clearly the truth of the statement made in verse 1? There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because the righteous requirement of the law has been fulfilled in us who are in Christ Jesus. And where the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled, there is not, it's, it's not only true to say there's no condemnation, but you must go further. You must state it positively. You must also say that there is justification. God has declared us righteous in his son because the law has been fulfilled. For he, this is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Again, when you think of the, right, the word righteousness, think of the righteousness of the law, what the law required of you, everything it demanded of you, both as a man and as a sinner. And then think of the life of Jesus Christ and the death of Jesus Christ and realize what God was doing in him. And then you need to only take one step further and say, oh, but I am in him. And thus, I am the righteousness of God in him. And yet we're able to go one step even further. For the righteousness of the law is fulfilled in us, not only in our justification, but also when we are enabled ourselves to keep God's law. This is the second kind of assurance, which begins uh, in the second part of verse 4 and goes to the end of verse uh, 8, if not to the end of verse 13. He speaks of the kind of people we are. We're the kind of people who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. You see, that's a question of sanctification. And that becomes the subject there in verse 4b through verse 8. Paul is here describing the Christian as he did in chapter 7, verse 6. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to that, uh, to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. That's what a Christian is. Or as he puts it in chapter 8, verse 4b, those in whom the righteousness of the law is being fulfilled are those who are walking according to the spirit. Not in the oldness of the letter, but in the newness of the spirit. And the idea is that. The result of God's grace seen in the believer's union with Christ is that in them God's righteousness is being fulfilled both judicially in their justification and personally in their sanctification as a matter of how they walk and live. The way the believer walks, the justified believer, is not according to the flesh, it's according to the spirit. The next sermon, I'll tell you all about that. In verses 5 through 8, he contrasts these two ways of life. Or to use the language of chapter 8, verse 2, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus is at work in them, uniting them to Christ, working in them the fullness of God's purpose. And the more they become aware of that purpose, the purpose of God at work in them through the spirit, both as a matter of knowledge, but also as a matter of experience, the more the more they will grow settled in their assurance of faith about themselves. That is, as they not only accept the arguments, but also as they walk by the spirit, being led by him, seeing themselves not 
as debtors to the flesh, but as debtors to the spirit, as he later says in Romans chapter eight. They will live out their days not in fear and a spirit of bondage, but they will rather know the joys and the triumphs of the life lived in Christ Jesus, full of the spirit of God. And so you see, it isn't just a matter of what God has done objectively in the past. It's also a matter of his great purpose at work in me now. And that is a purpose that I am not only aware of, but that I am growing in my knowledge of every day. Paul says, as I walk by the spirit and not by the flesh. But you are not in the flesh, verse 9, he says, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he's not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. Verse 14, for as many as are led by the spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Amen. And let us come to the table together. David, could, yeah, we're down an elder. We need a helper. Matthew 26. The words of institution. As they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broken and gave it to the disciples and said, take eat. This is my body. And then uh, he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Uh, Well, here I have many, many opportunities to remind you that the chief purpose of the Lord's Supper is Uh, that believers might grow in the knowledge uh, of assurance, that they might have that grace grace strengthened uh, in them. Uh, The primary thing the sign of the covenant is meant to communicate is God's ownership of us and our participation in that covenant. Now, it is possible, the old covenant clearly tells us, and uh, even the first uh, observance of the Lord's Supper clearly tells us that it is it is possible to outwardly partake of that covenant and inwardly not know its blessings. Uh, and that, that is why the Lord's Supper is attached not only with an invitation, but also with a warning. Uh, because the one who outwardly partakes but inwardly does not know the blessings, which is why, by the way, even a covenant child needs to profess faith, uh, is, is subject to the, the strict warnings of Scripture. Here is uh, the reality of God's judgment Uh, before you, uh, the possibility of of growing sick and even of dying. I I often wonder when I think of that, whether we we believe that's true anymore. Uh, Do we actually think that we're dealing with something that's holy in our midst and that it actually would be dangerous to deal with something like that in a spirit of irreverence or unbelief uh, or even unrepentant sin? Uh, Was your was your Saturday full of sin and and you come in here with a proud spirit. Now, maybe it was full of sin and you come broken hearted looking for grace. Well, to you, I say, come. 
but to the proud sinner, uh, the, the warning is the warning is is sternly given. You see, even in First Corinthians, it's possible for a believer, a true believer in Christ, uh, to partake in a wrong way. And I don't say this to terrify anyone. I simply ask you: Do you have faith, a sincere faith in Jesus Christ? Do you believe that there is something, a, a holy transaction, which is occurring here, that Christ Himself is present in our midst as we partake of the Lord's Supper? And that that is something that is inherently dangerous. And that unless we come in a spirit of humility and faith, uh, then we will find that God is against us. But if we come in a spirit of repentance, humility, and faith, then we will find that God is full of grace for the sinner. Uh, So I've tried as best I can to blend uh, the invitation and the warnings together that you will find. My intention is not to discourage the true believer from coming. My intention is solely to say, come in faith. We come in a worthy manner, the book says, if we recognize that we are unworthy sinners who need our Savior. If we conscientiously, or excuse me, consciously discern his body given for us. If we hunger and thirst after Christ, giving thanks for his grace, trusting in his merits, feeding on him by faith, renewing our covenant with him and his people. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of of this sacrament. We acknowledge to you, O God, that it is something that uh, we need. And that we would not come in a spirit of carelessness or unbelief or unrepentance. But the very thing that we seek from you demands faith and repentance and humility, namely grace. We recognize that, uh, that we are dealing with a holy God. And that this is a holy transaction. And that we need your grace. We need you uh, to, to, to keep on saving us. That is to say, we need your grace to, to continually flow to us. We need you to cause us to persevere in faith. And to, and to be sanctified more and more every day. And to grow in faith. And to bring us to the fullness of the last day when Christ will appear. And until he should come, O oh God, we will do this. Uh, outwardly contemptible as it is, along with the preaching. There's no value in it to the flesh. But to the spirit, to the inner man, there is great value. O oh God, would you nourish us according to the inner man, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.